I didn't really plan it out this way. I got a WhatsApp message from the Bets this morning at 5 o'clock. It was already 1 o'clock in South Sudan or whatnot. But uh, I wanted to begin by talking a little bit about our time for Shelly and me in South Sudan. There were maybe seven or eight people who professed faith in Christ in um, a village grouping of 50 to 80,000 people scattered along in mountains, about 20 linear miles. If you had to drive it, it was much longer than that. But, but that's, that's the setting. Uh, there really were no established uh, churches in that place. But there were you know, eight or ten men who said they believed. Out of that group, I think there were probably two or three that were really born again. But we would gather them occasionally and bring them down to a central place for uh, preaching and teaching, for encouraging them, because they were all separated out in various villages. They didn't really know each other. And as we taught the Bible and, and interacted with them about how are you a follower of Christ in your village and in your culture, one of our favorite questions to ask these men was, uh, who is it okay for you to hate? And you just, it was a very quick response. Uh, everybody agreed without question, it's completely okay to hate the Toposa, a neighboring tribe. Uh, it's completely okay to, to hate and kill on sight if necessary. Toposa, Latuka, uh, I could mention a few of the other tribes that were, were around there. And uh, it was your duty because if they, if they were showing up in your mountain area, they were there to steal cows. And your cows are your wealth, and everybody has an AK-47, and it's your civic responsibility to both hate them and shoot them. Um, and it's just a matter of fact. And so we would begin to say, hey, well, you know, Jesus said these things about loving your enemies. Would it ever be possible for you to think that, that one of you who are culturally very similar to these other groups, uh, would you go there and tell them about Jesus so that they might live? And all I can just say to cut the story a little bit short, it was a very, very uphill climb to get these men to disavow what they considered to be their legitimate hatred of these other tribal groups. And, and that was just part of their culture. It had been handed down to them over generations. They had seen the consequences of not hating and killing people from other tribes and, and whatnot. And so... When you think about that, you're, you're able to say, as a Western person who doesn't live in the Lopa Mountains, wow, that's pretty crazy. You know, that, that's so contrary to the Bible. But I tell you that story to raise the issue for all of us here. What things do we have as people who are Western, uh, culturally modern, that are contrary to the gospel and the scriptures that we embrace just as fully and uncritically as they did hating the tribal people around them. Do we have some of those things? Well, I'm, I'm sure that we do. And the problem is that you can't jump up and recognize three or four of them right off the bat is because you're blind to them, right? <laughs> just like they are. That's, that's the nature of having a cultural blindness. Well, the Corinthians... As we preach through the book of 1 Corinthians, we find that the Corinthians today had the same kind of cultural blinders. They had practices that were contrary to the message of the gospel, particularly centering around the Lord's Supper 
And Paul directly engages them in a strong confrontation about how they're practicing the Lord's Supper. It seemed completely culturally normal to them, but was completely contrary to the gospel. And so that's why we've been saying that in the book of 1 Corinthians, you have a messy church, a church that has all kinds of messy practices and beliefs on a big mission. They had a big opportunity to reach folks with the gospel. So as we look at that, we want to be asking ourselves, how are we similar to them? And what I want you to see in the end here as we look at the Lord's Supper is that Jesus' death for sinners of all socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, and it honors all believers as equal members of his church. That's a long thesis statement, isn't it? You know, Andrew always has those nice, short, pithy uh, statements. But, but let me say it again. Jesus' death for people of all socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper, and it results in honor for all believers as equal members of his body or the church. So we're going to try to demonstrate that for you from 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, verses 17 through 34, and we're going to take this in chunks, paragraph by paragraph, uh, to establish this. So 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34, is on page 11 in your worship guide. Paul says, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. So Paul's addressing their practice of the Lord's Supper. And both archaeology as well as writings from the first and second century help us understand this because it's very foreign to us. They excavated a house uh, just outside of Corinth in the late 1970s. And what the archaeologists and others found in that is that the, the houses of the wealthy, the, the bigger houses that were big enough to accommodate a group for a meal, these were likely the places that the house churches gathered. They were structured so that there was a, a formal dining room in the house. It was called a triclinium. And so just picture in your mind what you would think of a formal dining room might look like. And they measured this out because they had, they had excavated it, and they found that When you account for sofas, in this culture you would lay down on a kind of a sofa and the table would be before you to eat. That triclinium or that formal dining room might hold about 10 people. Outside of the doors of that formal dining room, there was another area that had a water cistern and then there were rooms that came off of that. And they estimated that in standing room, not reclining on a sofa, but standing that might hold another 30 or 40 people. And so the church now is gathered and you can see, you can begin to say to yourself, well, who gets to sit in the formal dining room and who gets to stand out by the exit door in the atrium outside? Um, how, do we, how do we do that? Well, 
in Roman society, it was very, very clear. And it's not that foreign to us. If you go to a banquet, let's say you go to a banquet of something and there's the big speaker, uh, John Piper's there to speak or something like that. Then there's the head table at the banquet where John Piper sits and the others. The, the most important people or the most critical people get to sit with them. And that's the way it was here, that the guests or friends, usually the socioeconomically powerful or affluent, get to sit in the formal dining room. And then others could gather as they might out in the atria, or atrium, and then the side rooms we'll call the atria. And even poor people might wander into that setting and get a scrap of food that was left over from the main dining area. And so, so what uh, Pliny the Younger said about this is very interesting. This is a, a first, second century writer. Uh, Pliny the Younger described in great detail how the Romans did these kinds of banquets. And there was a very prescriptive form. If you were in the formal dining room, in the triclinium, you got this bigger portion of food and you got this quality of food. And then it went down the line in terms of portion sizes right down to the fact that if you were sort of out at the edge of the atrium, you might get a couple of scraps left over. And even the wine, they had different size flasks for wine that, that, that the people near the, the owner of the house would get the bigger flask and you know the person out by the, the wall in the atrium might only get a sip. So you, you see what's going on. And this is totally acceptable in Greco-Roman culture. Nobody raises an eyebrow about these socioeconomic uh, distinctions. Well, when that comes to the Lord's Supper, you need to understand that the Lord's Supper grew out of the Passover. And the Passover is a full-blown meal that takes a couple hours to eat with scripture readings and all these things. And so within that meal, they would, they would use the words of institution and say, okay, right now, this bread and this wine that we're about to take, this is the Lord's Supper right in the midst of that. And so then what you see going on here in Corinth is that people were bringing their own food, people were bringing their own wine to sit in the formal dining room, there were portions being given out, and now you have one person who's eaten his whole chicken casserole and drunk his whole bottle of wine himself, while other believers are standing out in the atrium hungry and thirsty. And that's, that's what he's addressing here. And so his conclusion then is that what you're doing is not the Lord's Supper. Your disregard for the poor, you're carrying on what's culturally normal to you of these socioeconomic and probably ethnic too distinctions is a total contradiction of everything that Christ has done. And we'll come to that uh, a little bit more uh, later on. And so Paul is very concerned that our life together would accurately reflect the truth of the gospel. So now what does that mean for you and me? What does that mean for us at Lexington Presbyterian Church in 2023 here? Well, we don't cordon people off socioeconomically when we take the Lord's Supper and, and come down and, and, and participate in the Supper. Um, all these kinds of things. What, what do we have? And I, I just want to give you an illustration, I hope, of how easy it is to let your cultural situation dictate things that are contrary to the gospel. In 1824... First Presbyterian Church of Montgomery, Alabama was started. Conservative Presbyterian Church. 
Uh, it was there in the city of Montgomery all the way through um, the civil rights era. Uh, eventually, they began to decline as many evangelical congregations uh, in urban or city areas did, and they moved out to the suburbs. Hey, we'll fix our decline by moving to the suburbs. That's a standard evangelical kind of move. Um, and so they tried that. Well, when Reed DePace, who's a, who's a PCA pastor in our denomination, that means that he is, has bona fide uh, doctrinal uh, clarity. He believes in the inerrancy of Scripture. He believes the gospel. He believes everything down the line. He had to be examined on it. Uh, Reed DePace becomes their pastor out in the suburbs um, when they're down to about 50 people all over the age of 65. And so they began to say, you know, uh, he and a few older elders began to say, why does the Lord not seem to be blessing us with what you saw in Acts? He added to their number daily those who are being saved. What is it? What is this going on? So they actually began to search out their sessional records. And as they searched out their, their session, just so you know, we have elders' meetings and there's a bunch of records and you can go in the office and see the minutes of those things are all stacked up. They searched through those things. And what they found is that in 1956, when they were still in Montgomery, uh, the First Presbyterian Church of Montgomery, the elders and the deacons, agreed that black people would not be allowed in either worship or to be members of that church. Now... They were ahead of the game on this, right? Because it wasn't until about six years later that all the other evangelical churches began to do the same thing. They were early on in the game. And now you say, wow, what, what happened there? Well, that was reaffirmed after the bulk of the civil rights movement in 1974. The session and the deacons reaffirmed that they weren't going to have any African-American uh, worshipers or members. And so they put in place a plan of repentance and confession and some other things like that. But, but what I, the reason I tell you that story is in their environment, these are people who believed in the inerrancy of Scripture, who had read over and over again that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female, that the gospel itself eradicates socioeconomic and ethnic distinctions for those who've been born again. And yet still, these men decided something exactly contrary in their own cultural and timed context. Now, I just think that we should have a moment of humility with ourselves about this to not say well, if I would have been there, I wouldn't have done that. Are we sure about that? Are you sure? Or am I sure? The whole point of this text is it's a betrayal of the, of the gospel, evidence in the Lord's Supper. It's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating if you're excluding people from table and fellowship. That's, that's really, he said, that's in the text right here. You all are doing something, but it's not the Lord's Supper that you're eating. And it has to do with making who's in and who's out on socioeconomic, and I'm adding ethnic basis. So what does that mean for us? Well, one of the things that we could say that the Corinthians had 
uh, in their favor. And I hate to do this to you all because you're sitting here in front of me, but let's just say that it's true of us all in general. One of the things that they had going for them is that they saw the church as important, a place where they should be gathering and participating in sacraments together. Meaning they didn't have the individualistic view of salvation that we've inherited as Americans that I just raised my hand at the Billy Graham concert or I went concert, Billy Graham sermon or wherever it was, or I went down front, I prayed a prayer and now I'm just out there on my own. They understood that salvation in Christ means being joined to Christ and joined to other people in a sacramental union. Even though their sacrament was way out of bounds, they understood that corporate aspect of things. So in that sense, they were ahead of us on some occasions and some days. Then if we look at the socioeconomic thing, we just want to ask some searching questions. So is it possible that somebody who has a different view of the purpose and extent of government from you could really be a saved, born-again believer that you should gather around the table with. Now notice I didn't say it either way. <laughs> I didn't say it either way. You might be a person who wants a big, expansive government, or you might be a person who wants a really, really tiny, limited government, I might have a hunch what would happen if we took a poll. But are we going to stand around the table together in Christ without animosity? Okay, I really hope that we would see people who have gender identity problems or, or concerns, sins. Perhaps, and maybe that's some of you here today, uh, we really would like to see those folks some of whom may have already gone down a long trail of hormone therapy and surgery. We would like to see them here, right? Right? We would like to see them coming to faith in Jesus Christ, being born again, beginning to have healing of the inner turmoil that led down the, the sin and inner turmoil that led down those paths. But you know what? Those things don't go away. They, they don't get healed and go away normally in a day, do they? They absolutely don't. So do we want to take a person who has XY chromosomes but is dressed and looks like XX chromosomes and consign them to the atrium? Maybe you could get a scrap out there. I'm not really very comfortable standing around the table with you. So we just take a look at these things. We could look at it racially, ethnically, socioeconomically. And the good news of the gospel is that it obliterates all those things. And that's what Paul is bringing us around to. A lot of people have... Uh, so that was really the first point, is that the body of Christ eliminates socioeconomic and ethnic uh, distinctions when people are born again and are in Christ. The second thing that we want to see is that the body of Christ clearly proclaims the gospel. Uh, look at verses 23 through 26. 
Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, this text has been mined for centuries, dug into for centuries, to answer questions that I think contextually it really wasn't designed to answer. How often should we have the Lord's Supper? What's the nature of the Lord's Supper? A remembrance and a proclamation. Well, does that include uh, sealing and fellowship and all these kinds of things? Now, I'm not saying that the text doesn't speak to those things and it's illegitimate to, to answer any of those questions here. But the fundamental reason this is here is an argument to the Corinthians about why how they're relating to each other is wrong. And he's going to immediately come back to how they're relating to each other in the next set of paragraphs. So what is the point of this? Well, on my reading of this is this. There's one Jesus. There's not a bunch of Jesuses. There's one eternal Son of God who became flesh. There's one God-man who gave up his body as a sacrifice for sins, who bore the sins of his people in his body on a tree. There's just one. There's one Jesus who poured out his blood that he says is the blood of a new covenant. And for those who believe in him, this blood of a new covenant takes away all these distinctions between Jew, Gentile, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, male, female. There's an egalitarian aspect of the gospel where everybody at the foot of the cross is equally a sinner. And those who believe are equally justified and declared righteous in his sight and adopted as sons and daughters of God. There's an equality to all those judicial and fatherly aspects of the gospel. And so this meal, this Lord's Supper, is a remembrance and a proclamation of the gospel that breaks down all those socioeconomic and ethnic barriers. And those who are in Christ are raised in Christ. They're endued with the Spirit in Christ. And so there's equal footing as well within the church. And that's demonstrated and proclaimed, we remember it all, in the meal. Now, this has been clear through history that people, when, when the gospel is renewed, people grab hold of this. And so I, I would just give you a couple of examples. Uh, in Korea, uh, when, in 1904, when the revival came and the gospel broke out in power, it went primarily to the poor. And what you have then is poor peasants who wake up and say, I'm part of a new creation in Christ. My father loves me. I don't have to stay in this social setting. I can work. I can have a productive life in Christ. And there's the upward drift, what some people have called Calvin's up, upward drift that happens to impoverished people when the gospel flourishes among them. Now, it can also go sideways. You may know that Martin Luther 
nailed his theses to the door at Wittenberg in 1517. And his message was that the gospel is free through faith in Christ alone, by grace alone. You can be counted righteous and forgiven for your sins. And it's true for peasants and it's true for feudal lords who have a castle and for princes. It's all flat at the foot of the cross. And so people began to to vibe and began to apply this. And they would say, well, look, why are the princes running the church then? Why do they get to say who gets to be the pastor and who doesn't? Why do we not have a voice as peasants anymore? And so unfortunately, some people decided to take this up with violence. Hans Mueller and others in the evangelical brotherhood were on fire for the gospel And they decided to break out in armed rebellion. Ultimately, Luther had to side with the feudal landowners and 100,000 peasants died in that uprising. But the point is, the seeds were sown for an equality of opportunity that comes in the gospel for men, women, rich, poor, for all ethnic groups. And you see that it played out in Germany in the whole over the course of centuries, even though that peasant revolt uh, was probably misguided. I won't go into that. So I just want to ask you today for you, if you're going to enter into this and sort of buy into it, I just want to ask for you, are you enjoying the proclamation of the body and blood of Christ for yourself personally? Did you wake up this morning Is it on your lips and heart and tongue? Oh, I have trusted in Christ. I am washed from all my sins. Past, present, future. By the blood of the new covenant. I'm justified in Christ. He's my righteousness. He provided forgiveness for my sins by bearing them on the cross. I'm sanctified in Christ. I've been set apart as holy in God's sight forever because I'm joined to Christ. And all this happened through no merit of my own, but it happened in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. It's all of grace. I'm quoting to you in long form uh, 1 Corinthians 6, just so that you know. This is what some of you were, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And by the Spirit of our God, And you see, what I find here is that, in general, uh, we kind of all look the same and I think are from a fairly narrow socioeconomic uh, point of view. But what I find in talking to people is that there's a lot of shame going on in this room on Sunday mornings. What do I mean by that? What I mean by that is, if I dig into your life and talk to you, you come to church, and I know some of you, I know many of you, and I know your problems. I know your marital problems. I know your struggles. I know your struggles with your kids, your job, and other things. And I know that when we talk, sometimes you look around and everybody else looks clean and shiny and well-groomed, and you have a deep sense of inadequacy that I don't really belong here with all these together people. I kind of belong somewhere else. And I think an application of that for you today is 
Are you going to believe this gospel? Are you going to listen to that other sermon of shame in your head? What will you do? I was actually just having this conversation with somebody this week, and we just had to stop. And I, and I have to say, are you going to believe that, you're, that what the Scripture says, that you're washed, you're justified, you're sanctified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ? Or are you going to keep running this other tape of guilt and shame and inadequacy? And so let's be clear, left to ourselves, we are inadequate, and probably other people do have it more together than me. But that's not the point, is it? The point is, I've been joined to Christ. If you have true faith and repentance, you've been joined to Christ. And righteousness as a gift is righteousness without any defects. And forgiveness is a gift that's total without any defects. And it's not influenced by your performance. And you can see how this gospel then is absolutely antithetical to the, the central tenets of critical race theory where we are just going to divide up as oppressors and oppressed based on whatever the color of our skin or our gender or whatever. All the critical theories have that and it's, it's antithetical to the gospel and we, we reject those. So the gospel is proclaimed clearly in the body of Christ and the blood of Christ through the Lord's Supper. So you see, what, he, what he's saying here is that the, the gospel or the body of Christ obliterates socioeconomic and ethnic distinctions, is proclaimed in the Lord's Supper. And then let's move on to our last point here in verse 27. He says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves, truly we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I'll give directions when I come. So this text says to us, let a person examine himself, then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. And I, I would just say that in Protestant interpretation of this text down over centuries, what this has tended to do, whether, whether it was intended to or not, is send people off on a personal, introspective examination of conscience before they come to the Lord's Supper about any and everything. And for those who are, are particularly prone to oversensitive conscience, did I forget something? Oh, what, what if I had sins that I'm not able to articulate? Am I going to eat and drink judgment on myself? And all that sort of, um, can I, if, if I'm like this, can I say neurotic? <laughs> I, I would put myself somewhat in this category. All that neurotic musing, I think, is not the direction of this text. Right? What is this text about? Don't answer out loud. This text is about relationships within the body. The whole text is about, do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Are you considering other people in the body? 
So, and that's where he's going to end up at the very end with some simple instructions about what it looks like to discern the body of Christ. Do you understand that this supper, uh, which if we had better planning among the pastor, we might have had the supper today, but you can imagine that it will come a few days down the week, uh, down the line. This supper is proclaiming to you Christ crucified, his blood poured out, which means that we are all one on flat ground before the Lord and before the cross. Nobody better than anybody else. That, that's the point of this. Are you discerning that both for yourself and are you reconciled with other people and not wanting to send some out to the atrium that maybe they could get a, 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 a morsel or a, a sip of the Lord's Supper? That's the self-examination that's clear from this text. And what's also clear from this text is that the Lord is present among us. The Lord's present. And so I don't know how this worked. The Lord was present in Acts 6 or 7. Uh, when Ananias and Sapphira dropped dead, the Lord was present. But I think the Lord was present with First Presbyterian Church when they decided to exclude African Americans from their fellowship. But they didn't all drop dead. But we want to say the Lord's present and he's present in love as a father to his church to discipline us to correct us so that we wouldn't be condemned with the world. Can you do that? Can you put a loving, fatherly disposition to God and being justified and counted righteous in Christ together with the fact that the Lord wants more for you to be like Jesus and to be comfortable? And there may be discipline that's involved in that. And so what's really amazing to this is Paul has gone on this long story with these people, but then his, his solution to the whole thing is really fairly simple. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone's hungry, let him eat at home. Hey, if you've got your casserole dish and your bottle of wine, you have your glass of wine at home and eat a big portion of your casserole dish, and then you come thinking about the poor and disenfranchised to share your stuff with those who don't have any. And so do you see, if you're washed, you're justified, you're sanctified, faith expresses itself in love. Faith, according to Paul, faith in Christ, union with Christ by the Holy Spirit expresses itself in love. And this is all he's saying really through the whole book over and over again has at its root these socioeconomic distinctions. Why would you not have a lawsuit against your brother? You can't oppress your brother. He's your brother in Christ. Love one another. Why should we discipline people for uh, sexual immorality? Because of the purity of the body of Christ, because we love one another. Why would you not go over to, to the uh, temple of Sisyphus and have a meal there? Because your brother's offended by it. Love your brother. And it's really simple. Just come to the Lord's Supper and come to church with a concern for others. Now that's challenging, isn't it? Okay, I won't go there. Well, let me just let me just wrap up saying I have seen I have seen some of this, and maybe you've seen it in other fellowships before. Uh, and we can't we're not in Philadelphia, and we're not in a multi ethnic community in general. Okay, so you don't have to roll around in sackcloth. I'm just telling you a good story about Jesus. All right. We're up in Philadelphia, uh, around the church. There are Cambodian neighborhoods. There's a big Hispanic neighborhood, primarily from Puerto Rico. 
Uh, there's African-American big neighborhood. There's a Jewish neighborhood uh, that Dean Martin, those of you who are old enough to remember, Dean Martin was a member of that country club. You could walk there from, from the church building. Um, and there were people of all socioeconomic strata who were coming to worship. We were kind of the only game in town in the city at that time. And two people that I remember from that time, uh, one, his name was Roger, and he was the chairman of the Department of Anesthesiology at Temple University Hospital for a number of years. Um, Roger uh, was my friend. He encouraged me while I was in medical school. Uh, he lived a few miles away, but I lived in the city, and he lived in a really, really big house in Melrose Park, just over across the, the city line. Uh, Roger was affluent. I don't know if you know it or not, but anesthesiologists can make a lot of money. Um, I'll just, I thought I'd give you that information. They can. Uh, in our fellowship was also a, a, a man named Ralph, and I had the privilege and opportunity to work with discipling Ralph for one summer. We would sit uh, in his uh, public uh, housing apartment that was being paid for with public housing uh, money, and we would go over the gospel. And Ralph didn't really always smell really great. And Ralph would tell me stories. He was divorced, and uh, he had a big scar in the middle of his forehead because he said his, his wife had hit him in the head with a frying pan earlier. Um, Ralph, when I knew him, was on dialysis, and he had lots and lots of trouble on dialysis. He had used up uh, all of his access, arteriovenous access for dialysis. So sticking him and having AV fistulas replaced all the time was really difficult. But Ralph really came to understand the gospel and to really believe that um, he was justified by grace through faith. Now, Ralph really ran into some, some hard weather in his life. He had actually had a, a kidney transplant years before I met him. And I said, hey, Ralph, you know, what happened to your kidney? And he told me about the fact that um, he didn't trust banks and he had taken all of his cash and bundled it up and he had hidden it in the light fixtures on the, in the ceiling in his house so that nobody could find it. And his, his apartment caught on fire and it all burned up. All of his assets burned up. And then so Ralph was actually living in his car out in the cold in Philadelphia and he didn't have any money and he couldn't buy his anti-rejection medicine and uh, it was freezing and he lost his first kidney transplant. And uh, Ralph... Uh, Ended up dying in the hospital under terrible circumstances that I, I won't go into. That uh, as I was visiting him, he was in a lot of pain, and I don't think anybody had the courage to tell him that he wasn't going to get a second transplant, that all of his all of his access had had been used up, and that that he was going to pass away eventually from his renal failure. Well, I just want to tell you, I had the privilege of watching Roger Barnett. Sorry, I wasn't going to say your name, Roger, but you don't mind. The chairman of anesthesiology at Temple University Hospital stand beside Ralph Wackus to take communion, or sit beside Ralph Wackus to take communion. It was a joy and a delight. And when we did Ralph's funeral, it was all a great delight and joy. Christ has the power to make a new creation fellowship out of people who are from very disparate ends of socioeconomic and ethnic strata. May God work in us love for him and for his glory that we can see that Jesus obliterates those distinctions, is proclaimed in the gospel, and brings us all together with equality at the foot of the cross. Let's pray together. Father, we want to uh, ask you that you would
enliven our hearts, that you would renew our joy in the gospel, that we would have a heart to love and, and get to know and share the gospel with people who are different from us. We pray, Lord, that for, for um, removal of shame and sense of inadequacy and replacing it with the joy of the sufficiency of Christ. Lord, as we come to your table together, we ask that we would rejoice over this proclamation and remembrance of the gospel. We have your way with us and add to our number daily those who are being saved. Lord, we want that. We desire that. We pray that you would do it. In Jesus' name, amen.